Something else in the sky. As it turned in towards us, I talked the pilot in. You see the communications mast southeast of the water tower? Affirmative. Target that. Roger that. Heads down. That's the sort of advice you do well to follow. I got flat to the roof and put my fingers in my ears. The ground shook and debris came pattering down on me. When I looked up again, there was no water tower, no mortar, and not much left of the building it had stood on. Next target, said Ben. I nodded. We made the street. I was first through the door, Gary and Ian next, Ben last man, covering each other all the way. Like I said, we were doing the whole thing by the book. You could have used our operation as a training film. However, in a situation where people are throwing high explosives about and shooting at you from every nook and cranny, you have to accept that no matter what you do, sometimes it just goes wrong. As it did that day. The motorbike came through at speed, the pillion with an RPG on his back. Ian took them down with a burst from his G3 assault rifle, but what happened next? I don't know. One second I was standing under a doorway, the next, nothing. We think it was an IED, although it could have been that one of the lads on the bike was wired up as a suicide bomber. Whatever it was, it had a devastating effect. Ben got blown back into the house, Gary and Ian died where they stood, and I was knocked cold in the street. It turned out later that I had a smashed leg, fractured skull, broken jaw and dislocated shoulder. But I was spark out, so it wasn't worrying me at the time. Ben was the only man of the patrol who was conscious and relatively unhurt. He checked the street and saw that Ian and Gary had been killed, and that I was lying by the side of the building, probably dead too. He had every right to think only of himself, every right to just get out and try to disappear. But he didn't. The Mardi lads were pouring into the end of the street, shouting and screaming and shooting up everything that moved, and a lot that didn't. Ben spent ten minutes encouraging them to stay where they were, with a combination of his grenade launcher and automatic fire, and radioed in our position and status. Then he got some smoke into the street, and dragged me back into the house, though a bullet grazed his leg. Despite that, he got a line in me. Sod's law says that all the air support will be needed elsewhere at moments like these, and he had to hold his position until it turned up, fifteen minutes later. That may not sound like a long time, but believe me, in a firefight it's an age. Eventually an Apache came in and lit the street up with a 113mm fire, giving enough cover for him to carry me out of there, despite his injured leg. Now, Ben didn't have to do that. He could have just run, and he'd probably have made it, lost himself in the warren of streets. He had every right to assume I was dead anyway. That didn't matter to Ben. There was a chance I was still alive, so I was his responsibility, and he came through for me. I owe him everything. Everything. And it's a debt I take very seriously indeed. I respected Ben more than I did any man alive, 
not just because he was a good soldier, but because he was a good bloke, a proper, decent human being. I can remember his delight when he came to find me, awake and recovering in the medical centre. And I can remember what the death of his friends Gary and Ian meant to him. Ben loved life, mine, his own, and anyone's that he cared for, not least his wife and kids. So like I say, he didn't kill himself. I know that like I know my own name. It was late summer when I found out he was dead. One of those bright blue days you dream about. The sun warm on the water, pretty girls everywhere, and a light offshore breeze ruffling the sails of the yachts. I was in Cowes, the harbour town on the Isle of Wight, having brought over a bunch of property developer types on the little yacht I'd started to run when I left the army.